Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 22 of the Lisa Congdon Sessions. Gosh, I'm sitting here with Clay. Hey, everyone. And if you don't know Clay, she is my significant other, otherwise known as wife, my betrothed. (laughs) And Clay helps me with my Ask Me Anything episodes, and that's what we're going to do today. This is the third Ask Me Anything episode, and you can go back and listen to the first two if you haven't heard them already. This is where I answer questions that you submit to me, and I ask for questions on my Instagram feed. So look for those posts coming in the future. So we're just finishing up answering questions from, gosh, uh, ask that I did. 20 weeks ago. Oh gosh, it was a really long time ago. So. But they are timeless. They are timeless questions, which is (laughs) why we can spread them out over three episodes. So let's do it, Clay. Let's get into it. All right, Lisa. So is there such a thing as work-life balance when your work is what you love or... Does the balance come in waves over the long term? I think both. You know, I've always been somebody who, in theory, is both a hard worker and somebody who's very committed to her work. And this was definitely true even before I became a professional artist, because this was is my second career. But that's milkshake. She's shaking it out. <laughs> But at the same time, I like to think of myself as somebody who enjoys her friends and her hobbies and cycling and dinner and relaxation. And so I'm always trying to kind of live up to both parts of myself. And I don't know that work-life balance is possible unless you define what that means for you. And balance in the way we think of it in this sort of scientific way is kind of equal parts. And I'm not sure that work and life are equal parts for anybody except Mm -hmm. super rich people who don't work. Mm -hmm. Or maybe, I guess for them it's not either because then it's all play or it's all life and no work. So I think for a lot of people there is this especially people like me who are kind of married to their work and people who, no offense, Clay, people who... <laughs> not. <laughs> huh? But married to the work? People like me who are married to their oh, work. Oh, yeah, I thought you meant me. Clay, Clay was helping Milkshake get a blanket so she could make a little, a little bed out of it so she didn't hear what I said. Anyway, yeah, I think people like me who are devoted to their work and love their work and are super passionate about their work have maybe a harder time having, quote, balance and I, fortunately for me, I like to work hard, but I also like to play hard and I have a lot of energy, even at my age. And so I do think that for the most part, I find that balance sort of as this questioner puts it over the long haul. Like I might work a lot for like two or three months with very few breaks and then I'll go on a good vacation or I'll take a week off where things are a bit slower. You tend to work less in the summers. Oh, yeah, 100%. And I also, c- cycling is such a big part of my life, and I'm starting to race and travel to race bikes. And so I also i am just building these events into my calendar and basically not scheduling work during the race season, which is sort of new for me, and I'm really loving that. So, yeah, I mean... It's hard to achieve, but it's also good to have passions outside of your job. And fortunately for me, I do, because sometimes I feel like I love riding bikes and hanging out with my friends more than I like working, which is kind of nice. And sometimes I feel like I like working more and it just kind of depends on what I'm up to and maybe what season it is too. Mm. Yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit. So Let's talk about the tools that helped you learn and develop your artistic skills with. So what are those tools that Mm. helped you begin? And what are the tools you can't do without after you figured it all out and became more comfortable as an artist? Well, the tools that I use 
and I'm being very literal here, like <laughs> the artistic tools or the me you know mediums and things like that have changed. When I first started out, I didn't know how to use Photoshop at all. And I have a story to tell about that. And I didn't know anything about making my work digital. I didn't know how to scan my work. I didn't know how to clean my work up in Photoshop and get it ready to send to a client. And so I had a lot to learn. And fortunately for me, I, I signed with an agent pretty early on and she was super helpful in helping me figure out like what it is I needed, what tools I needed to learn. So when I started, I was mostly painting and drawing in pencil. So I used to make a ton of graphite drawings, and that's basically how I learned to draw more realistically, was just basically drawing things in pencil and erasing and, you know, practicing that way. I started to mix graphite and gouache for a while. Some of you may remember that phase I was in. Gouache was, and still is, really my favorite paint medium. I do paint in acrylic. I've never painted in oils. I've always been a bit averse to the terponoid that you have to rinse your brushes in and the toxicity of it. So generally I paint in gouache and acrylic and I started drawing in ink a lot when I started lettering. This was way before I started using an iPad to draw and I used a lot of like micron pens and I used to draw on vellum because you can also, if you like something that you're lettering or drawing and then you make a mistake, you can just put another piece of vellum over it and sort of trace over it. So I have flat files filled with stacks of vellum and tracing paper where I was basically tracing my own work to improve it. And that's pretty common, especially for people who do hand lettering. So those were a lot of the tools that I started off with and I just practiced a lot. And then in 2017, I had a pretty serious case of tendonitis in my elbow and forearm, mostly from scanning, well, not from scanning, but I used to scan the things that I made using analog media, and then I would play around with them in, in Photoshop and adjust them. And by the way, I learned Photoshop from my former fourth grade student. So my very first job out of college, my first real job, I should say, was I went back to school to become an elementary school teacher and I taught fourth grade and I had this amazing student named Brian Perez and he went on, he was an amazing artist. I actually had so many amazing artists in that class and we got back in touch at some point or a bunch of us did, you know, we had a reunion and everything, like a bunch of kids from that class and he had gone on to become an, a professional artist and he was at the time, I don't know what he does right now because I've lost touch with him again, but he was like, drawing backgrounds for video games in thought, yeah he was doing some animation and yeah. working potentially yeah. at one of those larger companies yeah. in the silicon valley yeah doing art he was amazing and so i was just getting started in my art career and i asked him like if i could just like make him dinner five times <laughs> if he would teach me how to use photoshop not writ large but like to do what I needed to do to like clean Tips up, and tricks. like clean up my work for clients. You know, how do I clean up a splotch of ink that shouldn't be there? That kind of thing. How do I take? At the time, I only had a nine by twelve scanner, and I used to scan things in pieces and then put them together in Photoshop. And he taught me how to do that seamlessly. So thanks, Brian. Anyway, aside from Photoshop, I I didn't really have many digital skills, and part of what was happening was I was you know, not working on a big monitor. I was working on my laptop. And as we know, like modern day laptops have trackpads. You don't use a mouse even. Not that a mouse is ergonomically like good for you, but a trackpad's really bad when you're like trying to edit your work. With your hand. With your hand. And so I was using my middle finger and my thumb constantly. And I was in the a really busy season. And my arm like basically seized up. I got tendonitis from these kind of like repetitive micro movements of my hand. And I went to this doctor who, who's now still my sports physician, even though this wasn't a sports injury. He now treats me for sports stuff. And he's like, look, you need to change up how you draw. This isn't, or how you edit your work. This isn't working. And so a few friends of mine had gotten iPads and were using like the first generation of procreate and we had a women's drawing group that I used to go to and I just 
basically handed over or one of them handed over their iPad to me and was like, check it out. And I was always really dubious about drawing digitally, but I kind of was like, okay. And I, and then like literally the next day I went and bought an iPad because you have a pencil. So it's just much more ergonomic than using your fingers on a trackpad. And I started drawing digitally and it took me, I would say a good year to get really good at digital drawing. And I kind of taught myself, I didn't take any classes or anything. So there's probably still a lot I could be doing differently that I don't know. But yeah, and I started using Procreate and I still mess around in my sketchbook with traditional media and paint. You know, when I have a fine art show, I do a lot of collage and painting and sewing and stuff. So I'm definitely getting my hands dirty. But most of my illustration work is done on the iPad now. And it's something that I'm like super comfortable with. Yeah, it takes a while. I mean, you know, I think doing something over and over and over and over again with the same tool is what gets you comfortable. And it just takes a really long time sometimes, depending on the tool. So, if you could go back in time, would you still choose to be a working artist and not just making art as a self-expression in your free time? Hell yes. I love being a working artist. It's so fun. Oh, God, no. Yeah. I mean, if I could change something, I would have changed it already. I'm not somebody (laughs) to, to... I don't really have much patience for being miserable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have patience for like working hard and like pain, like physical pain. And like, I have a tolerance for like putting my head down and getting shit done. But if I really didn't find joy in this, I probably still wouldn't be doing it. I, I really love what I do. And I also want to say that it's super valid if you're somebody out there who's trying to make a living as an artist and you're not into it. Like, it's just, it's not for everybody, but I love client work. I love like problem solving for clients. I love being art directed. I love illustrating. I love making work for shows. I love teaching. I just freaking love it all. And I just (laughs) wish I had time to do it all. I know that sounds like Pollyanna-ish, but it's really true. The parts of my job that I don't like very much are A, answering interview questions. And I don't mean this. I I like being interviewed on people's podcasts. I mean, like, somebody wants to interview me for their blog or whatever. Also in written format. Oh, yeah. It's grueling. And then what else do I not like very much? Like, administrative stuff. Bills. Yeah. And just dealing with, I mean, I have a staff now who does a lot of heavy lifting for me around customer service and things. But... Yeah, I really like my job a lot. I'm very lucky. It's awesome. So, do you feel that coming to terms with your sexual orientation affected your art? Oh, yeah. Everything in your life affects your art. I mean, you are who you are because of every single tiny thing that has happened to you. The culmination of all of those things. And so, everything about me, everything I've experienced affects my art. Even, I don't make art explicitly about being queer. I don't make art explicitly about loving bicycles. I mean, maybe occasionally. But, like, all of my life experiences impact my art, just like all of your life experiences impact your art. I mean, I mean, probably some more than others, but it's like what comes out of you is a direct result of every minute of your life and how you're feeling in this moment as a result of every minute of your life, even though you might not make work that is obviously about something that happened to you or something that's part of you, everything that happens to you and that is part of you is part of your work in some way. So, yeah. How do you keep going when your art is not well-received? Um, I mean, I'm not saying my art is not well received, but I haven't dealt with that too much. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that like, because I'm an illustrator and my work is very niche, meaning I get hired to do certain things that aren't terribly controversial for the most part. I don't. It's not like you got a bad review on your last opening in the New Yorker. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I I think there's an advantage 
to not being like a highbrow artist who like shows in galleries and who art critics are like picking apart like mm-hmm. maybe someday mm-hmm. that will be me like I have a long road ahead of me and maybe someday I'll be some famous you know fine artist who's like work is being picked apart in the New Yorker. But like right now, that's definitely not the case. In fact, nobody's really picking apart my work. I'm sure there are people out there who are like, Lisa's work is boring. It's whatever, you know, and, or it's just not for me. And then they just unfollow me on Instagram or, you know, I, I mean, I don't deal with very many mean people, which is good, but yeah, I think unless you're an artist who deals, who is working in an industry or a segment of the industry that's really harsh, or you're really well-known, you don't really have to deal with that. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I did have to deal with it, I should say, it would probably hurt my feelings, and I'd probably be sad, but I'm a pretty resilient person, so, yeah. Um, Aaron has many, many questions. Hopefully one of these speaks to you. (laughs) Aside from other visual art that you admire, what inspires your work? Are there any specific media such as music, TV, movies, books, places you've been, experiences that particularly inspire you? Is there anything unconventional that has been a source of inspiration for you? Hmm. Well, I mean, it's funny because Clay and I are about to get on an airplane in a few days and go on our first vacation. And the place that we're going is Mexico City. And not first vacation ever. First no, vacation. no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> first vacation since way before, like since like six months before the pandemic. And so we're really excited. And previously, previous to the pandemic, like most people, you know, we don't have kids. So whatever sort of extra income we would have, we would sort of put aside and just and go on a trip somewhere. That's kind of our priority, what we choose to spend our extra money on. And so previously I would travel by myself, Clay and I would travel together and travel was a really big part of our life. We've been Mm -hmm. to a lot of different places. And for the last two years, we have, you know, obviously been at home and I've traveled a couple of places in the U S in the last six months, but really until the last six months, not much. And so we're headed to Mexico city and then to Cozumel in Mexico for some beach time after that. And really travel, and I don't know that this that it's unconventional, but travel is really, truly the thing that inspires me the most and that has inspired so much of my work. Like in 2013, 14, I traveled by myself for a month all over Scandinavia. I think that was um, 2012. 12. Oh, gosh. Yeah, you're right. It was before we got married. Mm-hmm. And I saved up. And at the time, I was, like, not making the income that I make now. And my career was sort of still in its infancy. Because, what? gosh, that was 10 years ago, Clay. Anyway, and I saved, like, $8,000. And I bought a plane ticket. And... A big yellow puffy jacket. A big yellow luggage. puffy jacket, <laughs> luggage. And, like, I went to Scandinavia for, like, three and a half weeks. I went to Iceland where I was was kind of obsessed with Iceland. Like I was making work about like the Nord, you know, mysterious Nordic lands. (laughs) And that was inspired by, by Scandinavian folk art for years before I even went there. So I went to Iceland, Sweden, Denmark, and Finland. I went to the Marimekko headquarters in Finland. And I traveled by myself for the first time ever in my whole life. And it was amazing. It was life-changing incredible, so inspiring. I think it really changed the trajectory of my career and my output because I was so inspired. And I continued to travel often by myself since then. And then sometimes with Clay, sometimes with my sister. And so I'm really excited about this trip to Mexico Mm -hmm. City because art and design there is, and culture and folk art is such an important part of that place. And it's a place we've been wanting to go. And I'm just very excited about that. I think I'm going back to France in September. France is another country that's hugely inspiring to me, not just because of the landscape or the art and design. It's just sort of like how they approach life and, you know, taking a long lunch, (laughs) as it were. Yeah. So I'm, 
I travel. Travel is like my number one inspiration. I do also read, as Clay can attest, I'm a big reader. I love to read books. I'm constantly looking at books. You know, I'm very influenced by visual things, but I'm also influenced by ideas and people and messages and like things in the world that are messed up that I want to fix. I don't know. (laughs) So from the same person, what advice do you have for young creatives? I just graduated from college and I feel so stuck. I'm so interested to hear any words of advice you have from your experience as a professor or just your experiences in general. Well, if we're we're on the subject of staying inspired, I think it's really important, and I've written about this on social media before, you know, I, I like to say, find what feeds you. So, you know, I'm like, I'm kind of a, I've, I've, I think I talked about this a little bit in episode one, I or, or maybe not, but I'm kind of a, a searcher or seeker, like I'm always seeking. And it's not that I'm dissatisfied and always looking for something better or more. I definitely feel a sense of contentment around the stuff that I surround myself with and the things that I fill my life with. But I'm sort of a sponge for like, like a good rabbit hole, right? Like just plopping myself into a bucket of information about something that's interesting to me. And I think one of the things we can do is not get stuck in my work needs to be about this, or I need to be working in this medium, or, you know, like really open yourself up to new ideas, new mediums. When you see something or hear about something that's interesting to you, like read more about it, go learn more about it. We live in a time where we have access to information, like at our fingertips at all times, and then make work about the stuff that's interesting to you. Like find what feeds you, find what makes you excited. So my friend, Anna, she's a textile artist. She went to school for painting, I think like back in the day. And she's in her forties now. And she's been you know, has this business where she, she dyes clothing and she got really into painting last year. And first she was just painting these, you know, floral motifs and making collages out of them. And just recently she started painting these scenes and she's found this thing that she can't stop. Like she wants to paint all of the time. She can't sleep at night because she's so excited to get up and make a painting the next day. And she's just found this thing that, like, is bringing her alive. Is that going to bring her alive forever? No. Like, she will eventually burn out on this thing and then find something new. So there's two lessons there. One, like, find the thing that you can't wait to get up and do the next day and do that thing. And then do it until you can't do it anymore and then find the next thing. And... It's like, who is it that, there's some famous quote about like something about inspiration not coming to you. You have to seek it. Mm -hmm. I don't know who said that, but I really do believe that's true. And I feel like if you stay curious, like looking at everything and keep an open mind and stay very present to the present moment and like what's happening around you, there's always something beautiful or interesting or inspiring. And then lastly, I would say, take that stuff, like that input, that inspiration, and do something with it. Begin anyhow, like don't wait around for the perfect moment. Just start making stuff. Like, don't worry about what anybody thinks. Just, just do it. Yeah. Just do it. Dive in. Dive in. Yeah. Switching gears. This is from Sarah. I feel like my parents and a lot of my friends don't know who I am now after I came out to them last year. I feel like they know who I quote was and everything I once was, speaking of my last or my past religious Christian upbringing. And a lot of times I feel lonely, misunderstood, and unsure of how to be wholly me outside of being myself with my current partner and a few unconditional friends. Do you have any advice on self-love, self-help wisdom and insight on how to move forward and be you 100%, even if that means choosing not to partake in religious routines and what once was? Oh, that's a big question. I mean, 
I've never been somebody who's been consumed in a religion. Like I grew up going to church and in fact, my parents kind of like left that church because some people at the church were like a little bit on the dogmatic side. And I think that made my parents a little uncomfortable. So I can't necessarily relate to that. However, the first thing I want to say is that the goal of being 100% yourself is an admirable goal, but we can never be 100% ourselves. Like we're all walking around in fear. We're all walking, like not just those of us who are queer, like everybody walks around a little bit afraid of what other people think. And so letting go of this idea that you could at some point walk around being 100% comfortable in your own skin, I think is, is, is a, is a good goal, but like maybe not super realistic because none of us really walks around a hundred percent comfortable in our own skin, regardless of where we come from. So, I mean, especially women, I think some men probably walk around feeling a hundred percent comfortable in their own skin. Anyway, that's, sort of my first bit of advice is to understand that like it is part of human nature and part of being human that you're going to feel a little bit awkward and uncomfortable. Especially if you are part of a group of people or you have, you know, or you look a certain way or you have behavior that fits into a group that is rejected by mainstream culture. And certainly if you are part of the LGBTQ community, you you know what that feels like. Especially if you live in a place where the politics are more conservative and where folks are generally more religious. And religious in a way where, you know, things like conversion therapy or families rejecting their queer kids is more predominant. There are parts of the country where being queer is completely normal and embraced. So the fact that you even came out to begin with and that you're trying to live your truth is amazing. So I want to say that to whoever wrote this. The fact that you have a partner who loves you and who you love and friends is amazing. I think that no matter how old you are, you might be in your 20s, you might be in your 30s, you might already be in your 50s. But no matter how old you are, if you are making a big change in your life, like you're, you're coming out of the closet and you're coming out to people who have known you as something else for your entire life, it's terrifying. So being patient with yourself and gentle with yourself and granting yourself some grace is really important. And I can also say, to quote a very famous program, it, it gets better. And I think there are sometimes exceptions to that, but for the most part, as you get older, as you find your people, as you build your community, as you move to a new place, as your family gets used to you being who you are, as your friends understand that just because you're gay doesn't mean you're any different than you were when they thought you were something else, like all of those things help to ease the pain and help you to get more comfortable in your own skin. And there may be some relationships in your life that are always going to be uncomfortable. And you will learn how to deal with those relationships with grace and dignity. And then there are going to be relationships that surprise you, relationships that are painful now that at some point may completely surprise you. And I would say, leave yourself open to that possibility that people can change and will change and will accept you. And some of those may be people that are the last people you would imagine Mm -hmm. now. Yeah, people do come around. Yeah, they do. And it's a journey. I mean, it doesn't happen overnight. Clay and I both have family members who I'm really lucky because I have, okay, there are 13 grandchildren on my mom's side and three of us are lesbians. And I have a, my oldest cousin, Robin, came out first and actually I probably came out around the same time as she did, but we are eight years apart in age. She's older than I am. And then my cousin Karen, who's a year younger than I am, came out years after we did. But 
my whole family on my mom's side has really come around because they love us, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just a fact of life. And you're the coolest. Oh, we are the coolest (laughs) of all 13. (laughs) And then I know for Clay, like your, when we met your grandma, Grandma Dolores, like I think she knew obviously that you were queer, but like you never talked about it. Never, ever talked to her about it. It was just kind of this unspoken thing. So Clay could never really fully be herself around Grandma Dolores. And then I came into your life and like... It was all over. She just was so interested in us and you and we got married and she sent us a check, which was like completely unexpected and sweet, but it was very traditional. And I think that was her way of saying, I accept you, you are loved and, you know. Yeah. And like we went to visit and then a few years ago was her hundredth birthday and she died shortly after that birthday party. But like, oh God, you know, she was walking around introducing us to all her friends and oh, talking about how we were married. And yeah, yeah. just and she was, you know, in her night, you know, she was a hundred years old. So <laughs> I don't know. It I mean, surprises you. It does. It does. So you leave, leave some room in your heart for those, those unexpected moments and the possibility that people can come around. It's almost like you have to kind of like, get yourself in this place of disbelief. Like I'm not going to put too much pressure on certain people to accept me. And then I'm going to open up also at the simultaneously open up the possibility that people I never imagined might Mm -hmm. actually come around. I think first and foremost, you have to learn to love yourself for who you are and accept yourself for who you are. And that can be a really long and hard process. If you have a lot of internalized homophobia, which I did and you know, hatred towards yourself. I just am so grateful that right now there's so many resources for queer folks that didn't exist when Clay and I were in our 20s or 30s or teens or, you know. I just taught a class the other day for queer teens and they were, most of the kids in the class were born in 2008, so they were like middle school students. And I just thought, oh, I I got so emotional while I was teaching them. We were doing some writing and art together. And I got so emotional because I was like, oh, my God, this was me. And I didn't have (laughs) this. I had to keep it a secret. Now, I came out when I was 22, and I felt brave enough to do that. But again, I didn't wasn't raised in a, I mean, that was in the early 90s. Like, I wasn't raised in a religious household. And I really, my heart goes out to people who, who have been traumatized by religion because because it's tough. And I have, we have a really close friend named Lisa who was, you know, raised an evangelical and has really had to do so much work to heal from, ironically, to heal from that. So, so yeah, that's, that's about all I've got to say on that. I, I just, be patient with yourself, you know, love yourself to the extent that you can and give yourself time and patience and give the people in your life time and patience. Yeah. That's good. Thank you for asking. All right, changing topics. At your very core, Lisa, what makes your heart sing? Your work is so powerful. As a designer, how do you want to make a difference in this world? Oh, that's sweet. (laughs) Um, You know, can I see that question again? I I just want to make sure I, I, okay, at your very core, what makes your heart sing? I love making things drawing things that that don't just resonate for me but resonate for other people. I think that's like for me the truest joy of being an artist is going through the process of making something and experiencing the joy that comes with like making something out of nothing and creating something and like getting really good at doing that. But then when you put that thing in front of other people, which of course is always a vulnerable thing, and other people find joy in it, it's, there's nothing like it. Like, that's really what makes my heart sing. I always like to say that I feel like I came into being an artist at the perfect time in history because I was an early adopter of social media, and my career really blossomed on social media. And I don't mean like, oh, I got a lot of followers and, you know, made a lot of money. That's not what I mean. I mean, like, I had an audience, like a built-in audience, 
where I could literally directly be in contact with people who were enjoying my work. I mean, think about it in the old days. There was, you'd, you'd have to publish a book or have a show or maybe your art would end up in a magazine and, you know, some people would see it, but like... Or a zine. Or a zine, or I don't know. I just, these days it's like artists have these really profound connections with people who look at their work and love their work and... And it's not just on a local level. like you No, cross, it's internationally. And yeah. like if I, yeah, it's crazy. And I just, crazy in a good way. I mean, and I really get off on that. Like I'm such a connector. Like I love connecting with people. I love like just getting it. Like I just love people. And I have a an art practice where I can make art that is meaningful to me and then connect with other people around that art and pretty awesome. So this person, Brenda, says, I often hear artists giving advice about coming up with new ideas, getting inspired, but I struggle with the opposite. So many ideas that I just freeze and I can't choose, like I'm paralyzed. What would you advise? And do you ever get stuck, paralyzed? Yes. I mean, I have the opposite problem too. Like I want to do everything. I actually have had to teach myself not to buy all the art supplies of the things just because I, like, see something that looks interesting. The other day, my friend Ryan was, like, posting. He had gotten this, like, tool to burnish in wood, like, to draw in wood. It's like a wood-burning pen thing. And I bought it, and, of course, I suck at it, and he makes it look so easy, and I'm not sure I'll ever pick it up again. It was only, like, $30, but, like... (laughs) that's what I'm talking about. Like I see something that looks cool and I'm like, I have to do that. And I really have to restrain from, you know, trying all the things. Punch hooking. Punch. Well, I love punch <laughs> hooking. In fact, I just decided that I have so much yarn that I really need to get back into that. It was fun, but I did punch hooking for a long time. Very long time. Yeah. Two, two three years. Yeah. And I made a bunch of stuff to sell and So, yeah, I mean, I think all the time about, like, I want a quilt, I want to do this, I want to do that. And I don't know that it paralyzes me. I definitely make time to... You're an action person. Yeah, I make time... Yeah, I make time to try things and make messes and do things, even if I know I'm not going to be very good at it because I'm a beginner. Like, I'm really good at, like... I have a lot of things that I'm not good at, but one thing I am good at is trying things and not worrying about, you know, being perfect or having enough time. Yeah, like I love ceramics is my new thing. I suck at it. Like I really do. I'm taking a class right now and I'm learning so much and I'm trying to slow down and just not, I'm also somebody who like rushes through because I want, I just, I'm not very meticulous And so that's why digital drawing is so good for me because it's so quick to, it's easy to be meticulous because digital media is so easy to manipulate, but yeah, I love trying new things. I love all the ideas. I want to make all the things. I just fantasize about like having a studio that is a giant barn and then the barn is divided into like six quadrants and there's like, that doesn't make sense. Quadrants are in section, six sections and like each section. So there's like a sewing, a quilting section. There's a ceramic section. There's a painting section. There's a digital section. There's a, um, anyway, there's a lot of sections and I just, I can relate. So yeah. And I also, I should say that I get inspired by things, but I also do go through periods where I feel uninspired, not necessarily by the medium, but by like what I want to make work about or what my work should look like. So that's a constant struggle for me more than like, you know, whether I want to draw or paint or sew or whatever. Like I always have inspiration for like another medium But I do sometimes get stuck, like, what is my work really about? And, like, what do I really want to make work about? And, like, is what I'm making work about meaningful? Like, does it matter? You know, all these existential questions. (laughs) I struggle with that a lot. So do you ever even slightly consider ditching social media? I imagine it must be a lifeline for you and has helped you in countless ways, but it's also exhausting, right? 
suddenly social media disappeared, do you think there'd be huge health benefits for most of us? Those are a lot of questions. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's conjecture. I mean, how would social media disappear? But, okay, so would I ever, have I ever considered ditching social media? No. Has my relationship to social media changed? 100%. Like, I post like three or four times a week now. I used to be this person who had like a post planned every day. I used to give a lot of thought to what I would post. I used to spend a lot of time writing posts. And a combination of factors changed that. Like, for one, social media has changed. And so the algorithm isn't as favorable to visual artists who use still images. I still sometimes have posts that go viral, but they're generally not artwork. They're generally like me telling a story about something that I care about, which is fine as part of my art practice is telling stories. Another reason that my relationship with social media has changed is that I'm sort of bored with it. Like it used to feel really fun and exciting to me and I don't have the energy for it as much as I used to. And that's okay too. And yeah, I, I, I agree that I do get a lot out of it. I have built so many relationships. My career has really exploded because of it. And I'm so grateful for that. But I also need to listen to my own gut. And if I'm not feeling inspired by something or something, I like literally I'll, like two days will pass and I'll say, oh my God, I haven't posted anything on Instagram. Like, I can't believe that that happens because two or three or four or five years ago, I was so hyper-focused on it that I had a plan every day for what I was going to post. And now I have like people on my team who are like, um, Lisa, you haven't posted anything in a few days. Do you want to promote a product or something? <laughs> and I'm like, oh crap, I have to, yeah, yeah, sure. So yeah, I don't, I just, I do think it's really stressful and I do think aspects of it are damaging. We know so much now about how it's damaging, especially to young girls. And I struggle with that. I struggle also with people thinking that I have some perfect life because of what I post. And I try really hard to make posts that show that I don't have a perfect life because I think, you know, social media is an illusion. It's not reality. It's, it's a moment super in time. Yeah, it's super curated. And that's true even for people who are posting, you know, really negative stuff all the time. Like that's not their entire experience of life either. So yeah, I struggle with it. And I do wonder like every day, what does the future of social media look like? And where will I fit into that? I don't know. the metaverse. Oh, the metaverse. (laughs) Yeah. Clay works in VR. So (laughs) she's not necessarily, she doesn't work for Facebook. So she's, she's not promoting the metaverse. It's called, what's it called? It's not the metaverse. It's the, is it the meta? No. That's what Facebook calls it. That's what Facebook calls it. Yeah, but it what do metaverse. we call it? What is what is it known as? XR? No, like um it's something the something verse. Not the metaverse, but the We'll have to get back to you. <laughs> Clay, you should know this. Right? She's looking at me with okay, a smile on her face. <laughs> All right, let's move uh, okay, on. Okay, she's like, let's change the subject. But there's a word for like the virtual world that everyone's talking about right now, right? Like that you can like go for a walk in it. You can go to a movie in it. Yeah. It has a name. While it's metaverse. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Oh, okay. I thought that was just Facebook's name for it. No, it's the real word. So the metaverse is the future of social interactions, where we work, how we play, how we connect. And it's not just VR, it's social, it's, it's everything. So it's the future of the internet. And some people would say it's web 3.0. Okay. So, um, I thought there was another word for it, but yeah. Anyway. Okay. Well, moving on. Moving on. On a very different topic. Would you mind speaking about menopause? <laughs> oh, God. Okay. To anyone who's interested... Menopause. All right. I'm in the middle of it. Like true menopause, not peri, but true, which means that I have not had a period in two years, almost exactly like a little over two years. And for me, the main side effect 
the pretty much the only side effect of menopause that I have experienced is hot flashes and night sweats. And let me tell you, it's not fun. Like, you could be sitting there anywhere at any time, even maybe not if you were, like, outside in the winter. Maybe if you were outside in the winter in a big parka or something, it would happen to you. But, like, you could be sitting in your living room watching TV in a room that's not even that hot, and you just get overcome instantly with feeling hot and... Sweating. Sweat, like... My, yeah, I'm like literally wiping sweat off myself. It happens in the middle of client meetings. It happens in the middle of the night. It happens in the middle of dinner. It happens all the time. And anyway, it's been an adventure. I'm learning to deal with it. And I have weeks where it's not so bad and then weeks where it's really terrible. I'm really lucky because I have no other, like I know people who have had dramatic, dramatic menopausal symptoms like depression, anxiety, paranoia, mood swings. I have not had any emotional problems whatsoever. Just literally hot flashes. And it's likely that I would have had them even before they started two years ago when my period stopped. But I was on hormones. I was on estrogen to control my periods. And since I was 36 years old, because I had really bad periods, excruciating cramps, and terrible hemorrhaging. And so I went on birth control to control my periods. And then two years ago, when I was 52, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And they tested the cancer after they removed it. And it was estrogen receptive, which means that it's possible that the fact that I was on estrogen for all those years increased the chances that I got breast cancer in the first place. So I went off the birth control and that's when I started having really bad hot flashes. And I did have one period after I went off the pill and that was the last period ever. So yeah, there are lots of great conversations happening in the world right now about menopause and I'm so grateful for them. It's sort of this taboo topic, like you know, oh, I shouldn't be talking about this because I have male listeners, or I shouldn't be talking about this because I have younger women who listen. And honestly, I don't know why any of us should not talk about things that are part of everyone's reality, Mm -hmm. you know, openly. And so I'm getting, I'm trying to get more comfortable talking about it. And there are a lot of role models for that right now in the world. And I really appreciate those people because it makes you feel less alone when you're going through all the things. So, yeah. And then, by the way, this is not an invitation to email me about what's going to get rid of my hot flashes, because let me tell you, I have tried everything and I'm actually on some medication now. And I even stopped drinking about a month and a half ago and it made zero difference because everyone's like, maybe if you didn't have so many glasses of wine, Lisa Congdon, (laughs) didn't make a difference at all. So. Sadly. Well, not so sadly, because I love wine. I mean, I think if it had, I'd be... We had I'd... our dry January. <laughs> we did. We did. And it was worth it. It was. I learned that that I still have hot flashes even when I don't <laughs> drink wine. And I, I, I barely eat sugar. Most people know I've been off sugar for about a year and a half, and uh, that makes no, no difference no either. No difference. You nope. just got to go through... It's true. I'm, I do all the things it. they say you're supposed to do. I exercise. I, in fact, I think... The fact that my metabolism is so fast because of exercising actually makes my hot flashes worse. So you can't win. Anyway. No more advice here. Yeah. That is all the questions that oh we my have gosh. for you today. I That's guess I, ha- I have a question for you. Yeah. What are you most excited about for Mexico City? Um, okay. I am really excited to go to a place that I haven't been to like since I was in my early 20s. I'm really excited to experience like the architecture and just walking around the colonial architecture and the trees and the lushness. I'm excited. There's a lot of modern architecture there and a lot of modern art. I'm so interested in that. As everybody knows, I love folk art. And of course, you know, that's just such a rich part of Mexican culture and history We are going to the Frida Kahlo house, and I'm thrilled about that. 
And the Louise Barragon architecture yeah, tour. Yeah, And I'm just, there isn't one part of it that I'm not excited about. Of course, I'm excited to go to the flea market. I'm we just, are definitely going yeah, to the flea market. Yeah, I mean, just traveling. Like, I swear to God, like, we could be going to Miami and I would be excited. Not that Miami's not cool, but like... I mean, I'm just saying we could be going to some cool city in the United States and I'd be excited. Like, I'm just excited to travel with you and, you know, eat good food and not have to work and just really experience and absorb being in a different place that's warmer than it is here in Portland, Oregon. It's going to be really warm. It's about 38 degrees here in Portland and it's... Yeah. And like after that, we're going to Cozumel, which is on the Caribbean side and... Uh, east of Playa del Carmen. Yeah, and we're going to stay in a resort there. And I've never stayed in a resort in my entire life. Like, I'm 54. <laughs> and I'm just thrilled about that. I'm adulting, for sure. We're and definitely adulting. adulting. Yeah. And I'm just, like, super excited to lay by the pool and read books in Cozumel. So. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. thanks for joining me, Clay, on this AMA. You are welcome. AMA. Number three. Number three. And I will put out a call for new questions soon on Instagram. So take a look for that. We'll be back. We will. All right. Signing off. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone.